Lord Jesus, these are good songs. They teach us to look up and to look forward. We have to live in this day, Lord, so help us live in it well. But fasten our attention, I pray, on you. On better days to come, not only when relief comes in the pandemic, but when we are with you, Lord, at your return or when you call us home. Thank you, Lord, for all who have served us today. Thank you for this band and these musicians. Thank you for the little army of guys who show up to set this up every morning super early. Thank you for the people who are making the technology work so that we can gather and broadcast your good news into the world. I thank you, Lord, and I pray that you would give me calm and clarity and courage and love as we look at your word together so that I may say it accurately and most of all, Lord, that you would be obeyed. I pray in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Amen. Good morning. You're in for a different kind of Sunday. I didn't know it was going to be a different kind of Sunday until this morning in the first service. You have notes for a sermon, but this sermon is actually going to be two. We are not going all the way through the passage this morning. I decided right in the middle of preaching to take a little more time and to share the second half of the passage with you, hopefully better and more clearly than next week. So don't be alarmed looking at the notes. Let's look together in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, please. Hopefully, if uh, you're not, you will take, a, take 30 seconds when the service is over to subscribe to my weekly email. Here's, here's the rhythm. I send out a, an, an email on every Thursday to tell you what's coming up on the weekend. In this case, I invited you to read the first letter of Thessalonians, five chapters. It's very brief. Uh, even if you're a, a normal pace reader, you can easily finish it in 15 or 20 minutes. And then I asked you to really look at the end of the chapter, which is where we're going to be. Later today, at the end of this service, I'm going to send you another email suggesting readings for the week ahead. It's more important than ever that you maintain your spiritual disciplines and maintain godly habits. It's never mattered more than it does right now, probably not in our lifetime, Does it matter more than for Christians to act like Christians? Now is the time that the pressure is on. Now is when real character is going to be revealed. I'm going to talk to you because the passage requires it. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about pastors this morning. And if you've been following the news at all, and I'm not going to mention any name because, frankly, it's a long list and it's a lot of different mistakes, a lot of different kinds of sinful behavior. But you may have noticed pastors aren't doing particularly well in the pandemic. Don't Google if you don't know what I'm talking about. Somebody asked me in the first service, said, are you referring to this pastor over here? And I said, well, him too, but I was thinking about this other man. It's been a rough time. And people who represent Christ and who have the privilege of standing in a pulpit with an open Bible as I do, they're behaving in some cases less like Christians than people in the world who don't even claim to know Christ. It's important when the pressure is on that we draw near to the Lord so that they can see the difference that the character of Christ makes in us. 
The fruit of the Spirit, which begins with love, matters more now than it ever has. If we behave no differently, if we act no better, if we have no more self-control with someone who denies God, we're not going to be very credible when we speak of God. And in a way, that's what the letter of 1 Thessalonians is about. Paul has taken the gospel to the city of Thessalonica, but as so often happened, an uproar followed him and Paul was torn away from them, to use his words. One Bible translation says, Paul reflects Paul's emotions well. He says, when he left, we felt that we were orphaned. In other words, our hearts were knit together with you as family. Even though you were baby Christians, you had just come to Christ. We felt like you, we were your parents, your mother and your father, he says in chapter 2. We felt as children do when their parents are ripped away from them, he says. In other words, Paul is very, very close to these believers and he's going to tell them in the whole letter why he's so grateful for them and because he was torn away from them, because he didn't have the opportunity to teach as much as he would like, he's also going to gather them together and give them some basic instructions. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, for instance, he says to them to avoid sexual immorality that everyone should keep control of their own body and keep a holy relationship with their own spouse, that they shouldn't cheat on each other with one another's spouses and defraud one another. These are basic things, but this is the pagan world. These people were far from God. He says in the first chapter that they had been serving idols and now they've turned to the living and the true God. In other words, he has a lot to teach them. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, at the end, where I really encourage you to focus, he's got a series of terse commands. And the reason I didn't move through it as quickly as I thought I might in the first services, he said a lot of things. He said it quickly, but it's very rich. And if you ever played any kind of sports or were in any kind of team, even if it wasn't athletic, and you ever had a coach, what coaches often do right before the competition is they gather their athletes, they gather their scholars, their competitors, and they give them a few basic things. Whisper a few things in the air. Put a few more things on the whiteboard. Here are some basic things I want you to remember before you go out there and give it your best. When I was playing football, one of my coach's favorite things was he would always say, play fast and play angry. Good advice for football, pretty terrible advice for almost everything else, okay? But you can read 1 Thessalonians as that. It's just staccato one after another admonitions. Paul is drawing the letter to a close. It's almost as if he's down on one knee saying, listen, before I go... Let me remind you how you are to behave. Look with me in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. He said, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. 
pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's be candid. We're in a time of suffering. Globally, nationally, none of us have ever lived through anything like this. There's no one alive who has ever gone through something like this, at least in a position of leadership, in a position of having any responsibilities. There might be a few folks who are over 100 years old who were actually alive during the last great global pandemic. But they weren't raising families. They weren't trying to hold jobs. They weren't trying to encourage their friends. They weren't trying to pay their bills. They just lived through it, and they only have that as a record of history. This is a time of suffering. I'm speaking for what I know of the church. I'm speaking for what I hear from people and what I hear from our missionaries. I personally, by the grace of God, and because you've been so amazing, I have absolutely no complaints. You've been a very, very, very easy church to pastor, and I thank you for it. You've shown Christian character and kindness and love and self-control. You've consistently tried to put others ahead of yourselves. You're consistently looking to the needs and the pains of others rather than seeking relief for yourself, and it's made it wonderful. But we're going to continue to go through this together. We don't actually know how this is going to turn out. That's part of the uncertainty give you a little just this might be opinion but I think it's well founded nobody really knows what to do more than a vast global conspiracy I think what we have is a bunch of short-sighted frail human beings doing the best that they can that's certainly the case at Crosspoint we had a meeting when this all started when we had to move literally from Sunday afternoon to Sunday morning. We had to go from in-person to online. I remember saying, well, I'm going to change my teaching. We'll probably have a three or four week series and then this will be over. Remember that? That was back in March. And would you agree with me that this year has been the longest decade of any of our lives? It's just been hard. It's been weird. They've changed the recommendations. The restrictions roll forward and backward. That's because we don't know. And in a time of uncertainty, in a time where we've brought, been brought to our knees, sometimes literally, and been acquainted with our own ignorance and with our own frailty, that's pressure. That's suffering. That's difficulty. How do we move forward through it? The first thing Paul tells them in this little coaching talk right before he leaves them and they go back to the hard Christian life that has engulfed them, Paul's going to talk to them about serving one another because they together are part of God's family. Look at verse 12 again. We ask you, brothers. He's going to call them brothers in verse 12 and again in verse 14. And as is the case in Spanish, Paul is not referring to the men alone. He's using that term inclusively to talk to all of them. 
He's saying, listen, we're family. And that's quite a thing to to say because Paul is an ethnic Jew. He's an orthodox, law-keeping, zealous Jew, a former Pharisee. And now he's saying to these former idolaters, we're family now. We belong to each other. We're siblings in God. We ask you, brothers, first he's going to talk to them about their pastors. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. I haven't often talked to you about the role and the work of the pastor because the Bible itself doesn't talk about it often. The Bible primarily speaks of Christ and occasionally it speaks of under shepherds, pastors like me. This is one of those times. What Paul is saying here is that pastors have a responsibility. I'd like you to understand what my work is here. Look in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. That little word in Greek means that a pastor is to work to the point of exhaustion. It's not just a ho-hum effort. Paul deliberately chose a word for labor that means that a pastor is to work until he is tired. And a lot of people don't believe that about pastors. Have you ever, have you ever joked that a pastor only works one day a week? One of the oldest jokes in ministry, my dad used to say, my dad, I'm three generations in ministry, my dad at lunch after church would always say, not a bad job, we only work one day a week and it's a split shift. And of course, if you follow a pastor around, if he's, any, if he's any good at all, if he has any kind of respect for what the Bible's telling him to do, not like that at all. My responsibility to you, Paul says here, is to work hard among you. He says pastors are those who are over you in the Lord. That doesn't mean that he's a, a pastor is not a tyrant. He's not a cult leader. He's not someone who is closer to God or has special privileges with God. No, he's just another one of God's children, but it's a managerial term. It's a leadership term in Paul's language, in the Greek language they use to write it. It means that a pastor stands ahead. He stands in front of the people that he's teaching to guide them. And then it says, who are over you in the Lord and, watch that word, it says, admonish you. Now, if someone pulled you aside and said, I need to talk to you for a minute because I need to admonish you, would you take that as good news or bad news? Is that a good talk or a bad talk? It's going to be a little awkward. Admonishment and admonition means that you've strayed out of the lines and that someone is calling you back. Make no mistake. A pastor is to do that. Jesus is the good shepherd, but according to 1 Peter chapter 5, he has under shepherds. He has temporary deputies who are sheep themselves, who were saved by the good shepherd themselves, but they're given for a short time responsibility to work hard in the flock wherever God has placed them, to remind them of the Lord because the pastor's leadership always must reflect on Jesus. It's derived from and it serves the lordship of Jesus. And that takes all the tyranny, all the immorality, all the self-serving, all the abuse, all the money laundering and money stealing that makes, gives pastors a black eye in the news that you may have seen in the last few weeks. That takes all of that off the table. 
almost anyone is capable of almost anything, but the moment a pastor indulges in that kind of tyranny, in that kind of abuse, in that kind of very obvious self-seeking where it's about personal enrichment, guess what? He's not a pastor anymore. He has disqualified himself from serving because his job is to be laboring among people guiding them in the Lord and admonishing them. In other words, to know the way so well that he can with confidence tell them how to get back on the path. What am I trying to tell you? We collectively serve one another as part of God's family. It begins with pastors. Pastors simply are to guide and the people are to respond. If you're being given spiritual guidance, if you're being given spiritual direction and encouragement, if you're being served and worked for and worked with in a way that speaks well of Christ, Paul says in verse 13, to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. It's not the man, it's not the position, it's not the title, it's not the education that matters. It's the Lord who matters. It's the work that matters. And I read these verses mainly to myself and I find both encouragement and correction in them. Because as a pastor, I've worked hard and there's also been times where I have to confess I've been lazy. Every time I act lazy as a pastor, I'm offending the good shepherd. I'm failing the flock. But there's a responsibility on both sides. If a pastor is teaching and guiding correctly, verse 13 says that kind of labor must be esteemed very highly in love. This is family. It's not a top-down dictatorial organization. It's a family relationship. It runs on respect, verse 12, It runs on love, verse 13, and all of this happens because of their work. It's the work that matters, not the man. It's the message that matters, not the messenger. And then Paul closes in verse 13 by saying, be at peace among yourselves. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to learn Greek to know that if Paul tells a church, be at peace among yourselves, what does that tell you might be happening among them? They're not very peaceful. They've had their conflicts. After all, they are the kind of people, according to verse 14, they are the kind of congregation that has people in it that are struggling. It's not just the pastors. We have a responsibility toward one another as church members, as parts of the body. Look in verse 14. We urge you, brothers... He's no longer speaking to them about their pastors, no longer saying respect and love your pastors because of the work they do among you. He steps back, looks at the whole congregation and says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. What's the idea here? Simply this, strong Christians help struggling Christians. The pastors alone will not be able to encompass all the needs in the body. Who are the strugglers here? Verse 14 tells me there are some who are idle. There are others who are faint-hearted. There are others who are weak. And everybody and every one of these needs patience. 
When I look at these, these faults, these problems, these struggles, idleness, faint-heartedness, weakness, I think that pandemic has brought that out in all of us. Some people have used the pandemic as an excuse to grow idle. They've just gotten lazy. The, the old thing that we used to say to each other, you ever do this or is it just our family? We say to someone, let's get together. And yes, we will get together, but we have trouble scheduling. And it just goes on for months and years. Has that happened to anybody else? Now we've got a real excuse because now people are saying, as soon as this is over, well, when's that going to be? I don't know. We might see you in 2025, okay? Some people are using the trouble that we're going through collectively to engage in a little idleness. Paul says those people need admonishment. Others, probably a much bigger group in the pandemic, have grown faint-hearted. All the pressure, all the changes, all the restrictions, all the uncertainty, all the losses, all the grief have just taken the heart out of them. They've grown frightened. Paul says those kinds of people need to get courage from you. You encourage them. He says, help the weak. And I love the ESV translation of the Bible, but this one's a little better in the language that Paul used to write it. Have you ever seen someone injured? Since we're talking about football, you ever seen a football player, an athlete injured, and two teammates come to him, help him stand up since he has one uh, one injured leg, and they each get under his shoulder and they carry him off? That's the idea here. When Paul wrote, help the weak, what he literally said was, go to the weak and support them. Sometimes you can't stand on your own. Sometimes you're too weak, you're too tired, you're too scared, and your knees are buckling. Paul says there are people in the congregation, they won't be lazy, they won't be merely discouraged, they will be to the point of fainting and failure. When you find someone like that, you go up to them and you, you put your strength in them. You lean against them and let them lean on you, and you all along the way be patient with them all. This is 2,000 years old, but let this verse just search you for a second. You felt your patience faltering in the pandemic? Let's just be honest here. You're a quiet crowd this morning. Let's, let's just talk honestly. Would you say that you're more or less patient in November of 2020 than you were in January of 2020? Okay. Most of us have found that our patience is tested. I'd like to remind you that Galatians says that patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Times of pressure, times of trial, times of suffering, times of loss. Paul says in this conflict, when you have hardworking pastors among you, but you don't have peace among yourselves, listen to them and take responsibility for one another as well. Look around. Some of you will be growing idle. Some of you will be discouraged and cowardly. Others among you are going to be weak. Help each of them according to your need. And with all of those people, please be patient. The greatest gift you may be able to give someone in this time is your patience, your compassion. In the caring professions, nurses talk a lot about this. Doctors talk a lot about this. Pastors do sometimes as well. The caring professions have something called compassion fatigue. 
In other words, the constant need to extend understanding and love to other people wears you out. Just this morning, a good man in our church who has been serving some of the neediest people in our community said that he, as he continued to serve, he just wasn't feeling much joy and much happiness in it. He was concerned about himself. What's going on? He said, well, I think you're just growing fatigued from showing so much compassion. Folks, this is why we need each other. If I may, if I could look straight into the camera and talk to those of you who are online, wherever you're joining us from in the world, I'm so glad that you do. But if you're in our community, please understand that this virtual experience can only be a compliment. It can only be a sideline. Everything I just read to you in the Bible, everything that Paul told the Thessalonians to do for one another, all of that requires a personal relationship. Our church has grown to the size where we can't all know each other, but every single one of you needs to have at least a few friends. You need to feel like this church is genuinely family for you, at least in your relationships with a few people. It can't be everybody. It's just not humanly possible. I don't know everybody who attends this church anymore. I just greeted as if she were a guest, a lady after the first service. She politely and kindly explained to me that she's been attending for a year. I didn't know. In my defense, there's been a pandemic since March, so that uh, a big chunk of the year, possibly I couldn't have known. But that just shows the humanity and the reality. What we need are genuine relationships. So for those of you who are online, let me speak to you as a friend, as a Christian, as a pastor. If you're going everywhere else except church, please stop. Please come back. Because we need to find, by whatever means, whether it's Zoom or in person, we need to find and cultivate and deepen our relationships so that when someone grows idle, when someone grows faint-hearted, when someone starts getting a little cowardly, when someone starts getting a little self-indulgent or is about to collapse under the pressure because of spiritual and moral weakness, someone will notice I'm committed to doing every single thing I can to encourage all of you as best I can, but I can't do it alone. Paul acknowledged that, which is why he said, pastors need to work hard, people need to respond to that labor, and in all things at all times, strong Christians need to help struggling Christians. Keep this in mind. This may be your time to help someone else with your strength but the roles may reverse a month from now. Some trouble, some pressure, some loss may come crashing into your life that makes you feel faint-hearted. At that time, you're going to want someone to notice and care and come beside you. What I'm trying to tell you in very simple words is if church becomes a virtual TED Talk, if it's just a Bible lesson delivered on a screen once a week, if that's the extent of your Christian experience, you're missing God's design for the church, which calls us under the fatherhood of God, brothers and sisters, members of his family who know each other and care for one another. One more thought and we'll be done. Look now in verse 16, 17, and 18, please. Paul said, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I'm going to talk to you more about that next week. I was way too ambitious with this sermon this week and thinking I could get through all this passage. But here's the idea. These are, if you notice, it's a triplet. In English and in Greek, it's, it's quick, it's staccato. This is the coach saying, play fast, go hard. Don't forget this. Here's your cue. Listen, Christian, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God for you. Always rejoice. Always pray. Always be giving thanks. What Paul is talking about, and more on that next week, what he wants you to do, first of all, in this passage, he wants the church to come together as a family to serve one another. And secondly, he wants individual Christians to commit to godly habits that go beyond your circumstances. These three things, always rejoicing, always praying, and giving thanks in all circumstances, those things are timeless. Those ideas are all across the New Testament because the rightness of that and the good that that will do you will never change. One of the reasons I want to slow down is I want to explain to you next week in more detail and give you a very practical idea of how to do these things and why obeying these things is literally going to make you spiritually stronger. It's going to improve your emotional and your mental well-being. If you will commit yourself to rejoicing always, to praying always, and to giving thanks in all of your circumstances, you'll be different. And when this is over, however long this lasts, you'll be stronger for it. You'll look more like Jesus on the other side of this, but only if, and this is the final point, only if you stop living according to your circumstances. A lot of the anger, a lot of the hysteria, a lot of the frankly wicked, ungodly behavior that I've seen, and I made a mistake, I got on Twitter. That was a bad mistake in retrospect. I have a little burner account. No, I'm not giving you the name because I don't tweet. I just read. But years, years ago, I decided to follow a few people who I greatly respect from whom I can learn a great deal. And it has been one of the most shocking things in the pandemic to watch people that have guided me and taught me and pastored me in a sense for years lose their character, lose their bearings, be completely different now in November of 2020 than they were in the early part of this year. What's happened here? Men who know better, women who know better, who know the timeless truths and the timeless person of Christ got so embedded because of the pressure and the circumstances of this pandemic that they started living according to what was happening not according to the eternal truths of Scripture. Let's just talk about the first one. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. How? Is that even possible? See, if you read 1 Thessalonians, you're going to notice that the whole letter is sprinkled with suffering. The word suffering, the word affliction, the word distress, dots the whole letter Paul left the church and was torn away from the church in the midst of persecution. They themselves had their countrymen turn against them the way the Jewish believers suffered at the hands of their, of their fellow man 
years earlier when the gospel first came to Jerusalem, the whole letter talks about suffering and pressure. That, in part, is the point. How in the world and how can Paul possibly expect to be obeyed when he says, acknowledging all their trouble, he tells them, rejoice always. Well, here's the difference. He didn't tell them to always be happy. Bobby McFerrin had a song that occasionally crops up. It's an oldie now, which depresses me. But Bobby McFerrin had a little song that was called Don't Worry, Be Happy. Good advice, if you can follow it. But most people can't, and here's why. Happiness depends on what happens. That's why that English word is built that way. Happiness depends entirely upon your circumstances. If I told you that by the end of the day, I could give you a simple drink that would guarantee that this coronavirus would never come to your life, no one you cared would ever be affected, and oh, by the way, just out of the goodness of our heart, here's $10 million. Would that make you happy? That'd make you blissfully happy. Because something good had happened to you. Newsflash from the New Testament. Christian life is filled with suffering. The Christian life is filled with conflict. It's hard for Christians to keep short accounts with God and short accounts with, with each other, much less the world that is hostile to them. How then does Paul say, and does Paul himself always remain joyful? Because happiness depends on circumstances. Happiness depends on what happens. Joy grows much bigger and it goes much deeper. Joy continually flows out of a person who keeps their mind and keeps their heart settled on the timeless truths that God has promised. You may have noticed, go back and read it again and you'll see it very clearly. Every chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with a reference to the Lord's return. Every single time. Why is that? Because Paul doesn't want them to look around at their circumstances. You have to deal with your circumstances. You have to live in the present moment. You have to live in reality. But you want to keep your vision and your heart focused on the certain future that God has promised you in Christ. If you can look past present suffering to future reward, if you can understand that the trials in this life will soon be over and more joy and happiness than you ever could have imagined has been promised to you in Christ, you can stay joyful even when you're not particularly happy because that is the future that awaits you. If you let your emotions run you, if you let circumstances dictate your moods, your choices, and your behavior, you'll portray to the world that Jesus makes no difference that a relationship with Christ, that bearing the name of the Son of God, that a future in heaven doesn't really mean that much because you just can't have any joy in this world right here, right now. Folks, that's the world standard. There is misery and ever-elusive peace, peace and satisfaction always out of the grasp of people because the circumstances are always changing. We suffer through circumstances just like everybody else, but thank God, thanks be to God in His Son, Jesus Christ, that's not where our hope is. That's not where our future is. That's not what gives us fuel to live in this day and to keep our vision fashioned fastened on Jesus.
So please look around, understand that you're in a family that loves you. If you've gotten into the habit of simply absorbing a sermon, you take care of yourself, you be prudent, you do what is actually necessary for your health, but make it a priority for yourself and the people in your family that are looking to you to come back, to reconnect, to make a few friends, to be part of a church family where we are serving each other in love and we are committed to keeping our, our vision a little higher than the present difficulty we're living in. On the other side of it, I promise you, if you will put into practice what Paul is explaining here, You'll look back at these difficult days and though you may not be happy with everything that happened in them, you won't regret them because you'll come out on the other side looking more and more like the one who saved you, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Christian, can I just ask you for a minute to be honest and level with God? If you've been losing it, Look back up, look a little higher. And look at the family around you. Understand how much you're loved by God and how much we sincerely desire to love you here in his name. And let's be joyful and grateful together. Father, if there's a person here who doesn't know you, I pray that this would be the moment they turn to you and ask you for the salvation that we've been speaking of and that the communion reminds us. God, keep us steady. Keep us close to you and close to each other. Thank you for your great love for us that has told us we can rejoice in every kind of circumstance. We can be patient with everyone. We can. We can always be prayerful. And in the circumstances we find ourselves in, however difficult, we can even be thankful. Help us to live like that. We don't know what this week will come, will bring to us, Lord. We don't know what will come of the days ahead. But help us hold tightly to you and help us to live as your sons and daughters. May people looking at us find a faithful picture of you, Lord Jesus, and your great love for us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If I could have just a minute more. If you're our guest here, we'd love to know that. We'd love you to find the card that's in your bulletin and fill it out for us and take it uh, to that table right over there where it says hello. We actually have a cool little gift for you. You can have a cup of coffee on us. You can put it in a coffee mug that we'll give you if you'll stop by over there. If you're online, just send us the word welcome to the number 714-868-7258. If you're one of those who through all of this, today is the day you, it finally made sense to you. You saw your need of a savior. Let us know. Send me an email or just text the word Jesus, the name Jesus to that same number, 868-7258. If you have prayer requests or needs, the card that's in your bulletin is the way to let us know. Let us know online, digitally, if you prefer. You may have noticed on the way in, we have some Uh, yard signs that are advertising our Christmas Eve service. Folks, for the first time in years, we're actually going to have a candlelight Christmas service. We can't have candles inside. We can have candles out here. See? The pandemic taketh and the pandemic pandemic giveth as well. Okay? So we'll just make the best of it. 
We'll celebrate the Lord this time at Christmas time with all the changes, with all the losses. People might be especially hopeful to find something to do, find some place to be reminded of something that to them is a mere tradition. Our hope and prayer is that they would really meet the Son of God. A prayer request for you in closing. Um, we have a wonderful new youth pastor, Byron Morales, who's just made a world of difference. We prayed. We didn't know him, but we were praying for that man and for his family to show up. And he's my little brother in Jesus, and he's just a remarkable young man. He's actually put together a winter retreat for our kids for the first time in forever. The plan is, in very light pencil, to go on a winter retreat from January 1 to January 3. Are they going on winter retreat? We don't know, Okay. We might blow artificial snow around the parking lot and call it winter retreat. I don't know. The cost is only $200 because the church is going to sponsor a lot of it. If there's a single student who doesn't even have that, we'll cover whatever cost is necessary. We just want those students to go. You've been amazing in providing uh, toys for kids. We have over 50 children that we're going to give a Christmas smile to through that ministry. So thank you. And in closing, I want to ask you to pray for Byron Morales' wife, Alyssa. It's a weird accident. It wasn't her fault. She just got close to someone, believe it or not, who was whipping around a receipt, is my understanding, like from a cash register. And it whipped around as they do and actually cut her eye. I can't even imagine. I mean, if you, if you tried to do that on purpose a thousand times, you couldn't give yourself a paper cut on the eye, but she that happened last night. She needed emergency eye surgery. Her vision is already improving, but you can imagine. I mean, that was a, a laceration on the eye, it was shots in the eye. Was, she's in a great deal of pain, so I asked permission uh, for to be able to tell you what happened, to ask for you to pray for them. They have three very active, healthy little kids, and now mom's blind in one eye, and Byron's trying to help her and help them, and it's, uh, it's just a tough time for them. So if you wouldn't mind keeping them in prayer, we'd be very grateful for that. Folks, a whole new week awaits us. This Thursday is Thanksgiving. You sit around the table with however many or however few. Look around and be grateful. Look up to God and be joyful. Thank Him in prayer. And let's be the Christians that the world needs us to be so that they won't see us, so that through Christians, they'll see Christ. Father, we love you. Make it so. Not by our strength, but by the strength of the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, amen. Happy Thanksgiving, folks. Love you.